0: Well, let us uh, open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. This morning we are giving our attention to verse 5 in particular. We have been in verse 4 for three Sundays, and now we're entering verse 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So as we bring our meditations for this Christmas season to a close, let me give you a short recap of where we have been so far. We began by giving careful consideration to the fact that Paul sees the event of the coming of the Messiah as history's climax. This we could call the timing of Christmas, if you're filling in the notes. This is the timing of Christmas, which answers the when question. The birth of Jesus marks the fullness of time, meaning God created all of human history for this moment. God created all of human history for this moment, for the fullness of time. From there, we took our time given careful attention to the fact that Christmas is God's visitation. This, we could say, is the explanation of Christmas. The explanation of Christmas, which answers the what question. What did the birth of Jesus mean? We concluded that on that first Christmas night, it was God himself who was visiting his people, which helps us understand the words spoken by the priest, Zechariah. And we saw an Exodus connection there, and I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. It's going to be important. Last week, we came together to look at the third description of this season by establishing the fact that Christmas is love's sympathy. We could call this the essence, the essence of Christmas, which answers the how question. And we determined that God's son visited his people by becoming a human under the law, meaning he became a Jewish man. He became a Jewish man. So there you have it, the timing of Christmas, the explanation of Christmas, and the essence of Christmas. However, we are still missing one important element. It is one thing to know that the Son of God came in the fullness of time to visit his people in human form in order to share in their subjection to the law. This is all marvelous. It is important to know the timing, the explanation, and the essence of Christmas. So we have not been wasting our time here. It's important and it is good, but it would all be of no benefit to us if we didn't know the purpose of Christmas. It would be of no benefit to us if we didn't know the purpose of Christmas, which answers the, can you guess, why question. The why of Christmas is the magnificent bow that ties all of this together for the sake of application. So, if the when of Christmas is history's climax, and the what of Christmas is God's visitation, and the how of Christmas is love's sympathy, what is the purpose of Christmas? How do we answer the why? This question takes us all the way up to the title of this sermon, Our fourth description, fourth and final description, is this. Christmas is captivity's end. Captivity's end. We read in Galatians 4 verse 5 that the Son of God came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In order to Understand what the Apostle is seeking to convey. We need to begin with something the Lord Jesus spoke in one of the most beautiful prayers recorded for us in John chapter 17. And there is a specific reason why I want to begin here as we answer the why of Christmas. We must look at the heart of the Lord Jesus. In this prayer, and you can go there if you would like, John chapter 17, in this prayer, the Lord exposes his heart By expressing a divine desire. A divine desire. So as we answer the why of Christmas, here's where we need to begin. A divine desire. A desire for his disciples, which is truly glorious. In John chapter 17, verse 24, as Jesus prays to his father, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they... My disciples also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. These marvelous words express the heart of God. So what is that divine desire? God and sinners reunited. Right? That is the divine desire. God and sinners reunited. There is a mutuality in the divine desire. God wants us to participate in His life, in His glory, and in His beauty. God wants us to rejoice in who He is. The Lord expressed His desire to have His disciples with Him where He is. And so this is God's desire, to be with His people and for His people to be with Him. This is the love of God, the comprehensibility of which lies only in the mind of God and transcends ours. Just think about it. Think about this. God wants you to enjoy his presence while at the same time he wants to enjoy your presence with him. Which is shocking. It's shocking because sometimes I don't even be, want to be in my own presence. But Jesus, thinking about his own disciples, including Peter. 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 And showing a love that surpasses understanding, prays to the Father, requesting that his disciples, yes, including Peter, be with him where he is. I want them to enjoy my presence, says Jesus, and I want to enjoy their presence. This is the love of God. Hence the words of Yahweh in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Exodus 6:7. So before we even get into this in more depth, know this, my brother and my sister. God desires to be with you. He desires to be your God and for you to be His. He made you for Himself. But this truth, the wonderful in and of itself, reveals something wrong under the surface, doesn't it? What I mean is this. If Jesus is wanting a reunion between earthly and heavenly, then we can understand that there is something standing in the way. There's something standing in the way. Something that keeps us or keeps this reunion from taking place. This earthly and heavenly get-together cannot just happen because there is a human predicament. A human predicament. We have looked at the divine desire is to be with his people. For his people to be with him, but there is a human predicament. What is this predicament of humanity? Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. He says it this way, heavy words. He said this flesh and blood cannot do something. What is it that flesh and blood cannot do? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the what? The kingdom of God. Flesh and blood is a reference to humanity as it stands right now. And there is something that stands in between flesh and blood and the kingdom of God. What is that? It is this. Flesh and blood are in captivity, hence the need for redemption. Flesh and blood are in captivity, hence the need for redemption. What is to redeem? To redeem is to buy something back out of a state of captivity. So the very fact that Paul talks about the Son of God coming to redeem reveals the condition of those being spoken about. They are in captivity. But what do we make of this? How do we understand or define our captivity, the one that prevents us from reuniting with God? Well, in your notes, I have defined our captivity in the following Way. Here's how we can understand our captivity division, sin, death, and separation perpetuated by what? The law. The law. Division, sin, death, and separation perpetuated by the law. Now, let me make a confession here. Okay? This is very difficult territory to navigate. If you have done any in-depth Bible study in the past, you will know that to define the word law, especially when used by the Apostle Paul, has been the subject of centuries of debate among Christian theologians. So I will not pretend as if I can give you a perfect map to navigate this difficult concept. Instead, I am approaching this with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Thankfully, I know it is the work of the Spirit, not mine. I rest on that. So, at a basic level, what do we know about the law at this point? We know the law to be something that can hold us under its grip. As in captivity. As in captivity. In other words, it is clear from this verse, verse 5, that it is not good for us to be in this condition. It is not good for us to be under the law. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to be redeemed from under it. Being under the law is then bad. But the Son of God was sent born of a woman also under the law to redeem us from it, to buy us back. The Son of God appeared to change our condition as it pertains to the law. Law, simple enough? Yes, easy enough? So far, so good. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't stay that simple. For at this point, we are forced to ask ourselves a difficult question. What is the law under which we find ourselves? As we wrestle with this massively important yet very difficult subject, I have already given you four angles from which to understand the law as that which creates captivity. Four angles. I said that our captivity is, number one, division, sin, death, and separation perpetuated by the law. Let me try to unpack that now. The first angle from which to understand the law is this. The law creates captivity by emphasizing, number one, ethnic distinction. Ethnic distinction. Let us work up to this. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. That's a very good place to start. Galatians chapter 2. In his famous confrontation with Peter, Paul reveals what he has in mind when he thinks of the law, at least in part. Notice that in Galatians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul explains the reason for his confrontation with Peter. In their gatherings as a church, Peter was beginning to do what? He was distancing himself from who? From the Gentiles. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 14, Peter was even forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, which I believe implies that Peter was demanding that the Gentiles become circumcised based on what it says at the end of verse 12. Why was this something that infuriated the Apostle Paul? We find the answer at the beginning of verse 14. What was the problem with Peter distancing himself from the Gentiles? Peter's conduct in making these demands of the Gentiles was not in step with what? The truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? It is the truth that Jew and Gentile can now be what? One, Peter was creating ethnic disunity where there should have been ethnic unity. And how did Paul respond to Peter's bad, ungospel like behavior? Look at verses 15 and 16 of Galatians 2. Paul says to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by what? Works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In this specific sense, the works of the law, listen to this, the works of the law is what kept the world divided. The works of the law in this context is a reference, reference to ordinances that were exclusively Jewish, such as circumcision. What made a Jew a Jew? Well, several specific ordinances, at the top of which was circumcision. Peter wanted to reestablish the distinction between Jew and Gentile by bringing Jewish ordinances the works of the law, to bear upon their unity. In other words, Peter was demanding this, Gentiles, if you want me to hang out with you, then become a Jew. Paul came in and said, Peter, that is not the gospel. Peter, we are now living in the fullness of time. Peter, do you remember that? The Gentiles do not need to submit themselves to Jewish ordinances such as circumcision to belong to the people of God. They don't need a Jewish past to be able to have fellowship with you, Peter. Something happened, Peter. Something happened that has done away with those Jew-Gentile distinctions. What happened? Before we answer that, let us look at the second angle from which to understand the law as our captivity. The law creates captivity, second, by magnifying human sin. So in terms of ordinances, the works of the law, such as circumcision, created division between Jew and Gentile. It split the world in two. But in terms of the moral law, it created unity between Jew and Gentile by demonstrating that all Jew and Gentile are under what? Sin. Under sin. Therefore, in in one sense, the law divides humanity by creating Jew and Gentile. And in another sense, it brings Jew and Gentile under the same reality, namely the reality of sin. This is the point of what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 22. What is it that the scripture did? The scripture imprisoned everything under what? Under sin. As Dutch theologian Herman Ritherbaas said, The sinful passions within us properly assert themselves only when they encounter the resistance of the law. Then he adds this It is not the law itself, therefore, which is sin, but sin avails itself of the law as its starting point. Consequently, when the law comes on a man with its prohibitions, sin springs into action and awakens in man the desire for what is forbidden by the commandment. End quote. In other words, when the law comes to us, it has the ability to stir any dormant sin within us. The law brings out our sin. That's the second. The third angle here goes. The law creates captivity. By demanding our death. By demanding our death. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says that through the law, I died to the law. And in Romans chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I what? I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Moreover, Romans 2:12 says, "All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law." This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7, the apostle Paul speaks of the law of God as the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone a ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Why does he say that? Because the law imprisoned everything under sin as we saw already. So that's the third angle. Here's the fourth and final angle. The law creates captivity by sealing our separation. And by that I mean separation from God. The law with all its righteous demands, leaves us in a desperate place, doesn't it? The law stands over us as a seal of separation. For anyone seeking to ascend to God, the law stands right in between and says, no, you can't come near God. For through the law comes the knowledge of what? The knowledge of sin. So if you think about the law, Though good in and of itself, it can't help us at all. It is good, the law is good, but it is powerless. It is powerless. Once the law creates division, magnifies sin, demands our death, and seals our separation from God, it doesn't have the power to change anything at all. It simply stands there as a terrifying reminder that we are indeed condemned. The law can do anything for you. It can do nothing. The law can tell us what to do or not to do, but it cannot make you do it. How many in here are against the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery? Don't raise your hand, please. Those questions are risky. Sometimes I need to think before I ask. But the law tells you that, right? It cannot make you not do it. It cannot force you. Just like the traffic law can tell you the speed limit, but it cannot keep you from speeding, so too the law of God, once it shows sin, it cannot remove it. It cannot heal you. It simply shows it to you. In all its horrible glory. Therefore, the law even as a good thing, has become our prison. Our prison. We are in captivity under it. So what is the solution to this captivity? Here's the only solution, if you're following the notes. The only solution to this captivity is a new what? Lots of options out there, huh? I'm going to give you the one I'm thinking about. (laughs) A new exodus. A new exodus. Let's begin to put all of this together. When Joseph spoke to his brothers before he died in Egypt. Remember that I talked about this several Sundays ago? When he spoke to his brothers before he died in Egypt, he told them that God was going to visit them. Correct? He's going to visit them. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, Joseph was speaking prophetically about the Exodus. Therefore, the visitation of God had to do with freedom from captivity, which came in the Exodus. Thousands of years later, We're putting things together now. Thousands of years later, as Zechariah meditated on the announcement of the angel Gabriel, he concluded that God himself was what? Visiting them. And if divine visitation meant Exodus was coming for the Israelites, isn't it at least possible that Zechariah, as a Jewish priest, knowledgeable of his own Hebrew scriptures, would have seen this new visitation in the birth of Jesus as a prelude to yet another exodus. I think that connection is highly, highly probable. And if a new exodus was on its way because God was visiting them, that could only mean one thing, right? A new Moses was about to appear. A new Moses was about to appear. You cannot have an exodus without a Moses to lead the way. So let's pull these threads together. We have established the fact that our captivity is one expressed through division, sin, death, and separation perpetuated by the law. For we are under the law. We can't get out of it. Therefore, this new Moses must deal with all of that division, sin, death, and separation as occasioned by the law. In other words, this new Moses is someone who can bring unity among men, forgiveness of sin, life out of death, and full fellowship with God. Easy task, right? And all, all of it must be done done from under the law, not from above it. The challenge lies in this little detail. The law is God's. The captivity under it is man's. Therefore, without a new Moses who can stand as a representative of both God and man, there cannot be a new exodus to end our captivity under the law. And this leaves us with only one option. Only one option. The solution is that the new Moses the new Moses, must be Yahweh himself entering our captivity from above in order to provide freedom from below as one of us, as one of us. Behold the miracle of Christmas. As Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, one of us, born under the law, sharing our captivity To redeem, to buy back, to purchase, to free those who were under the law in captivity. In short, here's a new Moses. Now let us see how he did it. Let us see how he did it. Jesus is the new Moses who creates unity among men. As we saw, the law as ordinance says, what did it do to the world? You know it. It split it in two. It divided the world. Jew and Gentile. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew in the Old Testament, they had to go, undergo circumcision, become a Jew. The Jews were the circumcised ones. Everyone else was a Gentile. This division was retained all the way up to the first century, and it was created by the law itself. But with the appearing of the Son of God in human flesh, this captivity to division was brought to a definitive end. I want to show you this. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. And read with me what the incarnation of the Son of God accomplished. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is beautiful. Here's Paul speaking to the Gentiles. And this is what he tells them. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember, you Gentiles, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of what? Israel. Remember, the world was divided in two. And strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world jew and gentiles were divided verse 13 but now isn't that beautiful but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ for he himself is our peace between jew and gentile this is this is unheard of for the first time in centuries someone is saying jew and gentile are no longer separated For he himself is our peace, who has made us both. Who are the both? What is the context? Jew and Gentile, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. How important is it that Jesus became like one of us? In his flesh. He was born of a woman. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, how many? Just one. One new man in place of two, so making peace. The Son of God appeared in human flesh to create a new humanity. Or shall we say, the Son of God appeared in human flesh to show us how to be truly human, And this new humanity, listen to this, you're going to love this. This new humanity is no longer defined by things that used to divide us. No longer defined. Nationalities, languages, cultures, wealth, poverty, male, female, slave, free, all of it has been unified and united in Christ Jesus. Because of the incarnation, you and I are one. One. One in Jesus Christ. Our captivity to division is over. We don't need to divide ourselves anymore about anything. We are one with Christ. But that's not all. That's not all. Jesus is the new Moses, second, who nails our sins to the cross. Remember how the law magnifies our sin? Jesus took care of that captivity as well. Go to Colossians chapter 2. So keep going to the next layer, I believe, are you in Ephesians? Go to Colossians. Go past Philippians and get to Colossians chapter 2. I want to show you what the Lord Jesus did also in his flesh, in his humanity. Jesus took care of our captivity that magnified our sin under the law. Colossians 2 verse 13 and 14 we read, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. And what did he do with it? Nailing it to the cross. Our captivity to sin is over you don't have to be ruled by sin anymore. Whatever sin is dominating your life, you don't have to be a slave to it. Jesus has set you free. Why? Because he became a man. He was born of a woman and went to the cross. Jesus took on flesh and placed himself under the law so that he could die in our place. He nailed our sins to the cross in his own flesh. There was no other way, but it doesn't end there. We need even more freedom from our captivity. We see next that Jesus is the new Moses who crossed through death into a new world. Jesus is the new Moses who crossed through death into a new world. Not only were we captive under the condemnation of sin, but also under the wages of sin, which is what? Death. But Jesus came to bring freedom. He's the new Moses. He came. He became a man to undergo our death in order to destroy it from within. From within. We know this because he was dead for three days and then he rose again. How? As a man with a renewed body. Our captivity to death was defeated by Jesus. He did it all as one born of a woman under the law. This means that death is not the end of our bodies. Our bodies. The grave is nothing more than a temporary holding place. The grave is nothing more than a temporary holding place. Because of Jesus, our own resurrection is coming. Is coming. Think of all the people that you have lost, that you know that have passed. The Bible says that because of the incarnation of Jesus, we can know that one day our bodies will be raised. From the grave. And finally, Jesus is the new Moses who leads his people back to the Father. Jesus is the new Moses who leads his people back to the Father. Due to the law, which only served to magnify our sin, we were under the condition of orphans, unable to know God as Father. But this captivity to the orphanage of the law has also ended. Jesus became a man so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. What did Jesus do after his resurrection? I know that's a big question. What did Jesus do after his resurrection? He ascended into the very presence of God, now as a renewed and glorified man. Think about this. Think about this. This means that now, and for the first time ever since the fall, a human being has fully entered the presence of God on his own merits. The day you can do that will be the day you won't need Jesus incarnate. Our captivity to separation from God has ended once and for all in Jesus Christ, in Him we are now sons and daughters of God, fully welcomed into His presence. We can call Him Father. In fact, so sure are we of this that with Paul we can confidently say, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord? It's almost as if Paul is saying, who dares stand in the way? Not even the law can separate us from God anymore. So if you think about it, all of our needs were met by God in the incarnation of His Son. Now the divine desire expressed by Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 24, is a reality, for He did in His own flesh what we and the law could not do. He, think about this, Jesus inherited what? Remember what I told you what we couldn't inherit? Paul said. Jesus inherited the kingdom of God and he did so as a human being. But he didn't do it for himself. That's the beauty. As the eternal son of God, he already had perfect fellowship with the Father. Instead... He did it for us, hence the incarnation. In him, we, now we too, can inherit the kingdom of God. After his death, the body of Jesus underwent a transformation. It was made fit for entrance into the presence of God. As of today, our bodies have not been transformed, but we have the promise that they will be transformed and be made like his. That is our hope. What is the guarantee of this? Well, here it is. The Son of God was born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. A future reunion awaits us. One day, we will see him, and we shall be like him. And all because of that first Christmas night. So, here's the question. Where do we end all of this? I will end by giving you a fitting conclusion. Christmas, if you think about it, Christmas took place in order to retell a story. Have you thought of Christmas that way before? The Son of God appeared in order to retell a story. That's really the purpose of Christmas. Jesus became a man to retell a story. What story? Your story, my story, the story of us, the story of humanity. In other words, here's the conclusion to all of this. If you're following the notes, here it is. The first Christmas night took place so that the entire human experience, including the experience of Adam, Israel, and all of humanity, might be relived and remade successfully in the life, death, and resurrection of the new men. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Jesus Christ the Lord. Thus bringing redemption to all who believe. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the plan was always to do one thing, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So now the angels can look at that baby in the arms of Mary and say, glory to God, where? In the highest and on earth, peace. Now heaven and earth can be reunited. And this God has already started for 2,000 years ago in that lowly manger. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet critical reminder that in Christ we are indeed complete. We need nothing else. In him we have it all. The climax of history has already begun. You have visited us. You have expressed the sympathy of love. And now you have finally come to grant us the end of our captivity. All of which began with the birth of that little baby. In whom now this reunion can take place. So for those who are at this time facing sorrow due to life-changing circumstances, I pray that you will grant them peace. Knowing that Christ Jesus came into the world to do something new. May they hold on to that man who is now seated at the right hand of God. And so as we go through this Christmas season, for those for whom Christmas has become a painful reminder, I pray that they will not so much pay attention to the traditions, but to the one who came and became like one of us to give us eternal hope. And in him we rest. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.